multiple authors published in toxicology reports clearly showed that at every age range, one was more likely to die with the COVID-19 vaccine than take their chances with COVID-19, the respiratory illness. Welcome to this episode of the John Henry Weston Show, where I am so pleased to have for you a guest that is well known to all of you by now. Dr. Peter McCullough has been the foremost uh, medical professional dealing with the COVID-19 crisis and with the crisis now being caused by the so-called COVID vaccines. And uh, we are so privileged to speak with him now. You're going to want to stay tuned for this one. Let's begin as we always do with the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Dr. Peter McCullough, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. You know, you have been called an authority on this subject, and uh, you do have the authority on this subject. But if you wouldn't mind, give us a, a description of yourself that that is the reason why you have this authority in COVID-19 in this subject uh, more than most physicians uh, actually in the world. I'm an academic internist, cardiologist. I'm a trained epidemiologist. I trained at one of the nation's uh, top uh, schools of public health at University of Michigan in epidemiology. And I have a clinical practice that's focused on medical uh, issues in patients, broadly in adult medicine, and then in non-invasive cardiology. And so I manage patients with common infections. I've in my fourth decade of practicing medicine, I maintain my board certifications in both specialties, but I'm also an academic physician. I'm an editor of a major cardiovascular journal, Reviews in Cardiovascular Medicine. I'm the former editor of a multidisciplinary journal uh, for many years. Uh, I'm an author and I've published over 650 publications in the National Library of Medicine, PubMed, either as a first author or senior author or in an author block. And uh, when COVID-19 hit, I dedicated my scholarship and my skills in the clinical sciences towards COVID-19, as many physicians did, uh, patriotically, in a sense, to help out their countries and help out the world. So I've been joined by a cadre of wonderful scientists all over the world uh, that have broken the news that we can treat COVID-19 to reduce hospitalizations and death. And now we have a very careful eye on vaccine safety and efficacy. The data are rolling out so quickly that we really do need our top shelf clinical scientists and epidemiologists to weigh in and provide opinion. And as you pointed out, the nation has asked me that. I've given my sworn testimony before the U.S. Senate, as well as multiple state senates and houses of legislation. I'm commonly, I'm a commentator on many news programs, uh, Fox News, OAN, Real America, um, a whole variety of programs. And largely, it's because I've given accurate uh, citation and reporting of the medical literature, the science as it rolls out, and I've kept it free of opinion. I tell people, listen, it's not information. It's not misinformation. It's just the scientific data. And now we are holding seminars across the nation, and crowds are drawing between 500, 5,000 at a time. And these are people who could be out watching the new James Bond movie, but instead they're in crowded hotel ballrooms to learn about the science of COVID-19, clearly understand the data on effective treatments and emerging data on new treatments coming along, as well as on vaccine safety and efficacy. 
on that issue of vaccine safety, there is something called the VAERS database. Um, explain to us, if you will, what that is and what your findings have been with regard to VAERS and how the VAERS numbers compare to uh, things like wars and, 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 you know, disasters, national disasters. There are three major safety reporting systems in the world for vaccines that I'm aware of. One is the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System you mentioned in the United States, hosted by the Center for Disease Control. The other one is the um, Yellow Card System in the UK, hosted by the MHRA in the UK, and then the UDRIS system in Europe. And they all agree. They're actually all very uh, similar in terms of their findings in COVID-19. Uh, this, our CDC also has a vSafe registry that is can be uh, used for research, and that's participating with some integrated health systems and researchers have used them. Importantly, the VAERS data is open for researchers to do descriptive research. It's not uh, terribly good for analytic research because there's no control group, but we certainly can report on what's going on, and we rely on the VAERS system as an early warning system. And uh, as you alluded to, the most alarming thing that is in the VAERS and the yellow card and the uterus system is death. And so it's death occurring after vaccination. We know with VAERS that about 86% of the reports into VAERS from a prior study in the um, pediatric literature are from uh, people who are healthcare workers or are the pharmaceutical companies, people who really think the vaccine could be related to the death. Only 14% are reported by the patient's family. So we know that these are very serious reports. And what's in the open VAERS overlay, what's called the red box report, those are VAERS cases that have actually been assigned a permanent VAERS number. That means the CDC has uh, basically confirmed that the individual has died. The number we have as of uh, October 29th is staggering, uh, and it includes both domestic cases and then the other countries that report into our system. But the number is over 18,000 individuals reported who have died. We know from two analyses, one by Rose and one by McLachlan, using the VAERS system, uh, Rose restricted it to the domestic cases, that we know that 50% of these deaths occur within two days of getting the shot, 80% occur within a week, and 86% of the time, there's no other ready explanation. Now, we have some nursing home studies separately from uh, Northern EU and Scandinavia that suggests that when reviewers look at this, that about 40% of the deaths are directly due to the vaccine. I mean, the doctors really think the vaccine is the proximate cause of death. But whatever that number is, it's too high. From a regulatory perspective, I can tell you any death within 30 days of administration of a product is of concern and demands review. And the shocking storyline here is that our federal agencies have given no safety report to America. We We deserved a monthly safety report We needed to understand early on who's dying after the vaccine and why are they dying? And importantly, how can we avoid it? How can we make sure the next shot is going to be safe? And so what happened was over time, we never got those safety reports. Actually, January 22nd, we already had over 180 deaths. That surpassed the roughly 150 we expected. Um, And that was only with 27 million Americans vaccinated. So if we had a data safety monitoring board, human, human ethics board, and critical event committee, which should have been in place, and it wasn't, This program would have been shut down in February, uh, probably with about 27 million people vaccinated. It'd be very similar to the swine flu vaccine, which at about 25 deaths uh, in 1976, it was shut down. It rose to about 53 deaths. Uh, We clearly had an excess of about 30 deaths more than expected from the whole system by January 22nd. If you can imagine now, now running up to over 18,000 certified deaths, over 9,000 estimated domestically, 
uh, far and away, uh, Americans are on edge. There was an internet survey that came out this summer and asked the question, do you know someone who's died after the vaccine? And, you know, the respondents, again, it's not scientific, but the answer was 12%. That's enough for people to get concerned. So everybody in their family circles, I'm a doctor, so I've had someone in my practice die after the vaccine. So everybody knows it's possible. And so because of that, John Henry, we have anxiety in the United States, in the world, like you can't imagine. People are being told they have to take the vaccine, but yet they don't want to die, but they don't want to lose their job. You can't imagine the anxiety and the stress that everybody's being put under because of the risk of death with these vaccines. It's creating not only that juxtaposition where they want to survive with their families, et cetera, et cetera, but the psychological trauma. There's so many medical issues that are going on here. But just for this interview, I'd like to concentrate on the VARES right now. You had a recently published study that was pulled. It was already peer-reviewed. It was already accepted. It was already published even and then pulled. Please tell us what happened there. Like I told you, I've published over 650 papers uh, that are cited in the National Library of Medicine. I'm the editor of a major journal. I make editorial decisions every day. I, I run editorial offices for journals. I know exactly how this process works. So here we had a paper. The lead author is Jessica Rose. She's a viral epidemiologist. So she's one of the top shelf people in the world on this. She knows the VAERS system. She did a valid analysis of myocarditis occurring after the messenger RNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna. And uh, she had a manuscript. I was a co-author. This was welcomed by a major cardiology journal, The Current Problems in Cardiology. Uh, There was an editorial dialogue. There was a back and forth, as there always is in the vetting process. Ultimately, the manuscript was fully accepted. Galley proofs were created. They were approved. There were copyright assignments, publication contracts, fees that were paid. Uh, There was a listing in the National Library of Medicine and PubMed. And this paper became part of medical history. It was basically completed. It's a completed paper. And uh, we were stunned five days before the FDA meeting on vaccination children ages five to 11, five days before that critical meeting, this paper was pulled down by Elsevier. It said temporarily removed in the listing in PubMed. And we started getting emails coming in from all over the world. People needed to review the data. And uh, we received an email from Elsevier. It says, we've temporarily removed your paper because uh, we are questioning whether or not the editor of the journal actually invited the paper. Well, we have the entire dialogue back and forth. If the editor said he wasn't interested in the paper, it would have stopped right there. So it was obvious we had the editorial uh, dialogue there, that, which, is, which is standard in, um, in publication. And uh, we reviewed the contract. We said, well, what are the reasons that they can really pull down a paper? And really the reasons they could is if there was scientific misconduct or if there was some error in the data analysis that was found later on. And in fact, none of that was mentioned. So we think this is an overt act of censorship. Uh, The defendant in this case is going to be Elsevier, uh, the world's largest medical publisher, uh, and their offices are in the Netherlands. Uh, We will be launching a full-scale lawsuit against Elsevier, and it's going to be for breach of contract. I mean, obviously, publication fees were paid, copyright assignments, all of that. You can't undo all that, so they've obviously breached the contract. And then importantly, it'll be probably for another legal uh, infraction called tortuous interference, which means that they have interfered in the business of scientific publication. They've interfered with the business of uh, disseminating information on a topic of public interest 
in a time of crisis. So you can't imagine the type of heat that Elsevier is going to feel with this action. It was very obvious. In fact, the um, attempt at censorship draw, drew more attention to the paper. There was more requests for the preprint version, and it probably worked to actually publicize the paper more than it ever would have received. So what were they trying to hide? What did the paper discover and show? I think the most notable finding is that this myocarditis heart inflammation that occurs typically on the second shot after either Pfizer or Moderna, uh, it is explosive. And it happens within a few days of the second shot. But, you know, if it, the previous thinking, it was that it was restricted in age groups. You know, we saw cases all the way up to age 50, uh, boys and men more than girls and women. So the, the, the penumbra of risk, if you will, for myocarditis is much larger. And the caseload is substantial. I can tell you that the CDC and FDA in June, they had a universe of cases of 600. They had enough data to review 200. And they said two things that I think was incorrect and actually very reckless for the country. They said that that myocarditis was rare. There was just a, a conclusion based on dead reckoning. And they also said it was mild. And I can tell you in the original FDA review in June, 90% of these kids were hospitalized. So by definition, by regulatory definition, that's a serious adverse event. Anything that puts somebody in the hospital is always serious. It's never considered mild, never. The second thing is I said, it's rare. Well, they didn't check everybody for that. And we had hardly vaccinated any children in the spring. Well, here we are now in November of 2021, we have over 11,000 cases of myocarditis or pericarditis. And I was on national TV back in June. I told Americans, listen, this is not mild and it's not rare. It's serious. And now we have data from Tracy Hogue, University of California, Davis, August 30th, uh, published in preprint, use the VAERS and the VSAFE data. What she showed was stunning. Still 86% of these thousands of cases of children are now still hospitalized. So it's equally as serious as it ever was. And then very importantly, explosive in men, much more than women. The estimates are in terms of frequencies that this is uh, far in excess of occurrence of frequency in terms of those receiving the shot than the CDC had ever estimated. And she showed that in a comparative figure. And then lastly, that the trade-off uh, was really amazing. And parents need to listen to this. A child in her analysis, age 12 to 17, is more likely to be hospitalized with myocarditis then taking their chances with COVID-19 and ever being hospitalized with COVID-19, the respiratory illness. And that doesn't assume that there's any treatment and we can easily treat children with nebulizers, inhalers, simple oral drugs, and we can always avoid the hospital admission. So at this point in time, you know, the FDA is warning parents. They're warning parents that myocarditis with Pfizer and Moderna effectively telling parents don't administer the vaccine to your children. I think parents really ought to heed these warnings. This is unbelievable. From all of your research, what do you think is actually more dangerous, being injected with these COVID-19 so-called vaccines or to actually get the disease itself with the treatments that are available? You know, the FDA now on two occasions in September and October has heard these analysis, the one by Tracy Hogue, younger people more likely to be hospitalized with myocarditis with the vaccine. And it has to do with what's called determinism. This is important. When someone takes the shot, there's a 100% chance They've gotten the exposure to the shot. If somebody defers on the vaccine, 
it's not 100% they're going to get COVID. In fact, many people actually avoid COVID completely. So it's not so deterministic to actually defer and take your chances of community-acquired COVID. But Hoag showed, again, more dangerous to take the vaccine and be hospitalized with myocarditis than be hospitalized with a respiratory condition. And then the second analysis, very important, Ron Kostoff, multiple authors, published in toxicology reports, clearly showed that at every age range, one was more likely to die with the COVID-19 vaccine than take their chances with COVID-19, the respiratory illness. And again, none of that assumes early treatment. When we get activated with early treatment, our tools are so powerful now with the GlaxoSmithKline monoclonal antibody, Regeneron monoclonal antibody, nutraceutical supplements, uh, nasal and uh, oral decontamination, then the oral drugs, that we can head off virtually all of these hospitalizations and deaths now. So the vaccine does not look favorable at all for the outcomes of myocarditis or death. It's an incredible thing that we've uh, dealing with. Now, what's going on right now? There's many, many tensions in families, um, especially around Thanksgiving. You know, uh, people are being warned uh, right now, don't get together at Thanksgiving. There's untold numbers of stories of, uh, you know, people saying to their relatives, grandparents or grandparents telling grandchildren or, or children and grandchildren, unless you're vaccinated, you're not coming. So there's incredible pressure coming, familial pressure uh, coming from this. Um, what do you have to say about allowing your unvaccinated relatives uh, to attend, you know, your Thanksgiving celebration uh, without a vaccine? Is there any uh, scientific sense in, in that kind of uh, approach? Well, this year is a lot different than last year. Last year, we didn't have the data, but we do now. Fortunately, the virus doesn't spread unless somebody has symptoms. So this is very reassuring now to people all over the world. So if a child is not sick, they can't spread the virus. They are of no threat. Same thing if a senior citizen is not sick, he or she can't spread the virus either. So all we need to do is really just pay attention to symptoms. You know what it feels like when you're coming down with a cold? We need that perceptiveness. When those symptoms come on, for those who still are susceptible, they need to stay home, not to engage in congregate activities. And then if they're still susceptible, to go ahead and get a COVID test. Uh, this is very important. Now, if somebody has already had COVID and recovered, then they can't get it a second time. So they're, they're safe no matter what happens. So we know a lot more now than we did a year ago. And it's just simply paying attention to symptoms. And, and that's what's gone on. I had a wonderful conversation with uh, a doctor at Karolinska Institute this week in Sweden. And that's exactly what they're doing. They're just paying attention to symptoms. And if somebody has symptoms, they don't go to school or go to work. And if they develop symptoms at school or work, they discharge them home promptly. It's probably the only time one needs to wear a mask, by the way, is that if uh, one develops symptoms at school, I'd say put on a mask and then go ahead and, and retreat away from others and go home and uh, get a test. The natural immunity now is really going to carry us. The CDC at the meetings for um, the adolescents, now the children, acknowledged that we're probably at 40% of the children have already had COVID-19. That's through May. That's before the Delta outbreak. And Jennifer uh, Block published in the British Medical Journal in mid-September that she estimated by CDC and U.S. Census data that 120 million Americans had already had COVID-19 before the Delta outbreak. Now, the Delta outbreak was a big curve. It was actually two-thirds of our, our pre-vaccination curve last December. We're probably at 200 million Americans that are already through the infection. In the big symposiums we're having nationally, I usually ask for a show of hands. It's easily half to two-thirds of people already had COVID-19. And no one's wearing masks. You see that uh, big college football games now, 100,000 people in the stadium. No one's wearing masks. They're sitting shoulder to shoulder. There's no major outbreaks occurring. We're going to have a low rate 
of steady COVID-19, increasingly among the vaccinated. And I think this is the reason why seniors are on edge. You know, the majority of Americans who took the vaccine, they did it before April of last year. Vaccine rates fell off mid-April because people became worried about death and disability and complications with the vaccine. And we have 22 studies now showing, unfortunately, the vaccine immunity wanes. And effectively, at six months, people are now unvaccinated. And so uh, in uh, uh, mid-September, our FDA actually did uh, approve boosters or suggest boosters, and the CDC agrees for seniors over 65 and those with Um, high exposures to COVID-19. And so in Israel, as an example, now they reclassified everybody who's more than six months after the first immunization schedule, they're now reclassified as being unvaccinated. So right now, you know, we had approached 60% of Americans who have taken the vaccine fully immunized and and over um, 80% of our seniors were about ready to, in a sense, turn everybody back over to the unvaccinated state. Unbelievable. Dr. Peter McCullough, thank you so much for being with us. Godspeed to you. I pray that your lawsuit against uh, Elsevier um, really works to to show that they just can't cancel uh, for an ideological position. Um, and yet that's what's happening with the whole cancel culture. Godspeed to you. May God bless you. And uh, have a very happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. Same to you. And God bless all of you. We'll see you next time on The John Henry Weston Show. We have been warning everyone who would listen and attempting to build up alternative platforms to continue to reach you. We have established ourselves on all sorts of platforms I'm going to explain in a minute, but the most important thing to do is come direct to LifeSiteNews.com because there we will always be. But we've also established ourselves on platforms like Parler and MeWe and our videos can be found on Rumble as well. We would love to see each of you on those platforms too, as they are not censoring or suppressing the truth that we are sharing every single day. More than these alternative social media platforms, we highly encourage you to subscribe to our email newsletter. We have really built up a large list of loyal readers on our email marketing platform, and we have prepared several backup plans for, well, I want to say if, but it's really when, we are removed from our current platform as well. Additionally, I really encourage you, as I said before, to make it a regular habit to go directly to lifesitenews.com. Make it your homepage. While all of these different platforms are an excellent way to curate your news, going directly to our website means that you will never encounter any censorship or sudden loss of LifeSite News reporting. Here's the thing. We will never stop sharing the truth. We founded this organization with the mission to be the life, family, and culture source for men and women who seek to know the truth. We have established a track record of honest reports, and this will never stop, even with censorship happening around the globe. Again, I'm encouraging you to join us on Parler, MeWe, Rumble, and on our email list. You can find all the direct links in the description of this video. May God bless you and keep you, and we are so thankful that you've chosen to follow and support LifeSite News. I'm John Henry Weston, co-founder and editor-in-chief of LifeSite News.